0: This is the one-year Bible reading for July 30th, and we are starting today in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Last time, we're, well, we're still following the uh, kingdom of Judah, and last time we had the death of King Amaziah. The people of Judah then crowned Amaziah's 16-year-old son Uzziah as their next king. After his father's death, Uzziah rebuilt the town of Elath and restored it to Israel. Uzziah was 16 when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother was Jechaliah from Jerusalem. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Uzziah sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as the king sought the Lord, God gave him success. He declared war on the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna and Ashdod. Then he built new towns in the Ashdod area and in other parts of Philistia. God helped him not only with his wars against the Philistines but also in his battles with the Arabs of Ger and in his wars with the Maonites. The Maonites paid annual tribute to him and his fame spread even to Egypt for he had become very powerful. Uzziah built fortified towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle in the wall. He also constructed forts in the wilderness and dug many water cisterns, because he kept great herds of livestock in the foothills of Judah and on the plains. He was also a man who loved the soil. He had many workers who cared for his farms and vineyards, both on the hillsides and in the fertile valleys." Uzziah had an army of well-trained warriors ready to march into battle unit by unit. This great army of fighting men had been mustered and organized by Jael, the secretary of the army, and his assistant, Maasaiah. They were under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officials. 2,600 clan leaders commanded these regiments of seasoned warriors. The army consisted of 307,500 men, All elite troops. They were prepared to assist the king against any enemy. Uzziah provided the entire army with shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and slingstones. And he produced machines mounted on the walls of Jerusalem designed by brilliant men to shoot arrows and hurl stones from the towers and the corners of the wall. His fame spread far and wide for the Lord helped him wonderfully until he became very powerful. And then come the words we hate to hear, which are so common to all humanity. But when he had become powerful and proud, which led to his downfall, he sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the altar. Azariah the high priest went in after him with 80 other priests of the Lord, all brave men. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is the work of the priests alone, the sons of Aaron, who are set apart for this work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have sinned. The Lord God will not honor you in this. Uzziah was furious and refused to set down the incense burner he was holding. But as he was standing there with the priests before the incense altar, In the Lord's temple, leprosy suddenly broke out on his forehead. When Azariah and the other priests saw the leprosy, they rushed him out, and the king himself was eager to get out because the Lord had struck him. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in isolation, excluded from the temple of the Lord. His son Jotham was put in charge of the royal palace, and he governed the people of the land. The rest of the events of Uzziah's reign, from beginning to end, are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz. So Uzziah died, and since he had leprosy, he was buried nearby in a burial field belonging to the kings. Then his son Jotham became the next king. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah had done, but unlike him, Jotham did not enter the temple of the Lord. Nevertheless, the people continued in their corrupt ways. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate to the Lord's temple and also did extensive rebuilding on the wall at the hill of Ophel. He built towns in the hill country of Judah and constructed fortresses and towers in the wooded areas. Jotham waged war against the Ammonites and conquered them. For the next three years, he received from them an annual tribute of 7,500 pounds of silver, 50,000 bushels of wheat, and 50,000 bushels of barley. King Jotham became powerful because he was careful to live in obedience to the Lord his God. The rest of the events of Jotham's reign, including his wars and other activities, are recorded in the Book of the Kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. When he died, he was buried in the city of David, and his son Ahaz became the next king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel and cast images for the worship of Baal. He offered sacrifices in the valley of the son of Hinnom, even sacrificing his own sons in the fire. He imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations whom the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the pagan shrines and on the hills and under every green tree. And that is why the Lord his God allowed the king of Aram to defeat Ahaz and to exile large numbers of his people to Damascus. The armies of Israel also defeated Ahaz and inflicted many casualties on his army. In a single day, Pekah, son of Ram- uh, Ramalia, Ramaliah, Israel's king, killed 120,000 of Judah's troops because they had abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. When Zikri, a warrior from Ephraim, killed Mesaiah, the king's son, Azrakam, the king's palace commander, and Elikana the king's second-in-command. The armies of Israel captured 200,000 women and children from Judah and took tremendous amounts of plunder, which they took back to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there in Samaria when the army of Israel returned home. He went out to meet them and said, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah and let you defeat them. But you have gone too far, killing them without mercy, and all heaven is disturbed. That statement is really interesting to me, especially after what we read yesterday, that our prayers interrupt heaven. And I just think about whether the kingdom of Judah and the people of Judah uh, cried out to the Lord, and that was what caused the disturbance in heaven. And now you are planning to make slaves of these people from Judah and Jerusalem. What about your own sins against the Lord your God? Listen to me and return these captives you have taken, for they are your own relatives. Watch out, because now the Lord's fierce anger has been turned against you. Then some of the leaders of Israel, Azariah, son of Jehonanan, Barakiah, son of Meshelamoth, Jehiz, uh, Je- Jehizkaiah, son of Shalom and Amasa, son of Hadlai, agreed with this and confronted the men returning from battle. You must not bring the prisoners here, they declared. We cannot afford to add to our sins and guilt. Our guilt is already great, and the Lord's fierce anger is already turned against Israel. So the warriors released the prisoners and handed over the plunder in the sight of all the leaders and the people. Then the four men mentioned by name came forward and distributed clothes from the plunder to the prisoners who were naked. They provided clothing and sandals to wear, gave them enough food and drink, and dressed their wounds with olive oil. They put those who were weak on donkeys and took all the prisoners back to their own land to Jericho, the city of palms. Then they arrived in the area. About that time King Ahaz of Judah asked the king of Assyria for help against his enemies. The enemies, the armies of Edom had again invaded Judah and taken captives, and the Philistines had raided towns located in the foothills of Judah and in the Negev. They had already captured Beth Shemesh, Aijalon, Gederoth, Soko and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and the Philistines had occupied these towns. The Lord was humbling Judah because of King Ahaz of Judah, for he had encouraged his people to sin and had been utterly unfaithful to the Lord. So when King uh, Tiglath-Pilser of Assyria arrived, he oppressed King Ahaz instead of helping him. Ahaz took valuable items from the Lord's temple, the royal palace, and from the homes of his officials and gave them to the king of Assyria as tribute. But even this did not help him. And when trouble came to King Ahaz, he became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him. For he said, These gods helped the kings of Aram, so they will help me too if I sacrifice to them. But instead they led to his ruin, and the ruin of all Israel. The king took the utensils from the temple of God and broke them into pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple so that no one could worship there, and then set up altars to pagan gods in every corner of Jerusalem. He made pagan shrines in all the towns of Judah for offering sacrifices to other gods. In this way, he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. The rest of the events of his reign and all his dealings from beginning to end are recorded in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. When King Ahaz died, he was buried in Jerusalem, but not in the royal cemetery. Then his son, Hezekiah, became the next king. Next we have the book of Romans, chapter 13. And we've been hearing a lot, if you're involved in church reopening lately, about Romans 13 and whether or not the church is following Romans 13, whether we need to follow Romans 13. So here it is. Obey the government, for God is the one who put it there. All governments have been placed in power by God. So those who refuse to obey the laws of the land are refusing to obey God, and punishment will follow. For the authorities do not frighten people who are doing right, but they frighten those who do wrong. So do what they say, and you will get along well. The authorities are sent by God to help you. But if you are doing something wrong, of course you should be afraid, for you will be punished. The authorities are established by God for that very purpose, to punish those who do wrong. So you must obey the government for two reasons, to keep from being punished and to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid so they can keep on doing the work that God intended them to do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and import duties and give respect and honor to all whom it is due. Pay all your debts except the debt of love for others. You can never finish paying that. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements of God's law. For the commandments against adultery and murder and stealing and coveting and any other commandment are all summed up in this one commandment love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to anyone, so love satisfies all God's requirements. Another reason for right living is that you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for the coming of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here, so don't live in darkness. Get rid of your evil deeds. Shed them like dirty clothes. Clothe yourselves with the armor of right living as those who live in the light. We should be decent and true in everything we do so that everyone can approve of our behavior. Don't participate in wild parties and getting drunk or in adultery and immoral living or in fighting and jealousy. But let the Lord Jesus Christ take control of you And don't think of ways to indulge your evil desires. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the dark valley of death, I will not be afraid. Proverbs 20, 11. even children are known by the way they act, whether their conduct is pure and right. And to end today, we're back in the life you always wanted. Norman has gotten cat hair all over me. And uh, so we are in the practice of prayer, which he calls interrupting heaven. And if you missed yesterday, go back and watch the end so you know that what we talked about, um, which was so good. And I want to spend two more days on prayer. I know I need it. Um, So we talked about basically the importance of prayer yesterday. And now we want to talk about the power of prayer and the practice of prayer. So the first thing that Ortberg talks about in the power of prayer is the example of um, Abraham's prayer uh, to the Lord when he finds out that he's going to destroy the town of Sodom. And he decides that to ask God, he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be that from you. Shall not uh, the judge of the earth do what is right? And God says, okay, he'll spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous people. You can almost hear the wheels turning in Abraham's head. Do I dare keep going? And he dares. And God agrees. And Abraham dares again. And uh, the moral of the story, according to Walter Wink, is that it pays to haggle with God. He writes, the fawning etiquette of unctuous prayer is utterly foreign to the Bible. Biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, shameless, indecorous. It is more like haggling in an oriental bazaar than the polite monologues of the churches." So we need never to sort of couch our prayers in um, fancy language. Uh, We can just ask the Lord for what we want and and, uh, um, intercede for others. Let me uh, go on to, oh, he talks about the fact that the disciples seeing Jesus He says they had a front row seat to watch the greatest prayer who ever prayed. And they noticed that things happened when he prayed, and they asked him, Teach us to pray. And Ortberg says this is really remarkable, actually, because the disciples would know how to pray. They would have understood that, but there was something different in the way that Jesus prayed. It says uh, they wanted to be nourished in the way that Jesus was, and so they asked him to teach them. Here's the lesson. Prayer is learned behavior. Nobody is born an expert at it. No one ever masters prayer. As Thomas Merton puts it in his book Contemplative Prayer, we do not want to be beginners, but let us be convinced of the fact that we will never be anything else but beginners all our lives. So, let's roll up our sleeves how do we learn to pray and this is what i want to leave you with just this practice this morning it says let's start at the very beginning to learn how to pray we need two things a time and a place lynette martin writes about the single most important rule when it comes to establishing a regular time of prayer quote the way to begin is slowly i advise five minutes a day This may feel impossibly short, but it is better to get a short time established than to begin with a longer one that you give up later as being impractical. It should not be longer on one day because it feels nice and shorter on another as the mood takes you. Even if you feel great enthusiasm and want to go longer on one day, please restrict yourself to only five minutes. Set aside the same small block of time day after day. It can be done. And Ortberg writes, so choose one time each day to have a focused time of prayer. Make it the same time each day. We are busy people, and I know for many it may seem impossible, but if you allow the time to vary, it has a way of evaporating altogether. Many people get stuck on a kind of prayer treadmill. They go too long without praying, then they feel guilty, so they resolve to change their prayer habits. They decide they'll pray for vast stretches of time and try to go far longer than they are capable. When they can't sustain it any longer, they give up until the next time they feel guilty. So break the cycle. Keep it to five minutes every day. We want to become masters of prayer overnight, but it usually doesn't work that way. So that's my encouragement to you today is to find, to set aside a new habit of five minutes of concentrated prayer every day. And that's not to say that we won't continue to pray to the Lord throughout our day, but to have that set aside consistent five minutes of prayer. Hope you have a wonderful and prayerful day today. Love you all.